that we would seek to exalt the Son. And may the Spirit open our eyes that we might behold, that we might understand wonderful things from your Word. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I love this letter that was actually sent to a resident in Greenville, South Carolina. The letter came from the Department of Human Health and Services. The letter said, your food stamps will be stopped effective March because we have received notice that you have passed away. <laughs> the next line read, God bless you. And the final line read, you may reapply if your circumstances change. And if that person was a believer, their circumstances changed. And they won't need food stamps. Because when we pass on, those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we will be resurrected. Actually, there's a resurrection for everyone. The Bible tells us some unto life and some unto death. And the turning point is what you do with Jesus Christ. But I want you to know on this Resurrection Sunday, dear believer, your circumstances have changed. On the morning of that very first Easter, the disciples needed a change in their circumstances. They'd been following Christ with every hope that his kingdom would come, with every hope that they would have a vital part in it. It would be an earthly kingdom and put down Rome. It didn't happen. Christ died, and they were indeed filled with fear. When you think of the 10 disciples, that's the 12 minus Judas, who betrayed Christ, and minus Thomas, who wasn't gathering with the 10, the 10 needed to have their circumstances change, change from fear to courage. Thomas needs his circumstances changed as well. He needs to be moved from doubt to faith. And then there's one woman that is focused on in the resurrection accounts. Her name is Mary Magdalene, and she needed her circumstances changed as well. She needed to go from tears to joy. It's interesting that the story of Thomas emphasizes faith, the story of the disciples, hope, and the story of Mary, love, and that's exactly what the resurrection purchases for the disciple, faith, hope, and love, because Jesus is alive. I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to John's Gospel, chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, there is a pew Bible in the rack in front of you, and you'll find our text on page 1074. If you don't own a Bible, take that one. We read in John chapter 20 that early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Mary Magdalene, a very interesting person. That last name focuses on the city in which she lived, Magdala, 
On the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee was a center of commerce. In fact, I think Magdala, at least in the Galilee, was much like New York in the United States. It was the place where it was happening. And if you were from that place, most likely you had resources. You had position. And I think Mary Magdalene did. But Luke tells us in chapter 7 that she also had lived a very sinful life. And because of that, uh, she had come under the power of the evil one and continued to get worse. But she met Jesus, and all that changed. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, we have a story of Mary Magdalene pouring precious oil on Jesus' feet. Now, this isn't the, the Mary that we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, who was the sister to Lazarus and to Martha. This is Mary Magdalene, who also poured the oil on the feet of Christ and wiped the oil with her hair as she was weeping. And Jesus said of her, I tell you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven because she loves much. To hear the Savior say to you, your sins are forgiven, is heaven indeed. And ought to elicit from your soul this loving much motive and attitude that drives you in all you do. Jesus said, the one who has been forgiven little loves little, but she has been forgiven much, and oh, how she loves her Savior, which makes the loss even more difficult. So we read about an early trip, while it's still dark, on the first day of the week, and she noticed that the stone, the stone had been rolled from the entrance. She was, I'm sure, concerned as to how she was going to move it because it was so big. And either before she traveled or on her way, an earthquake took place, and she felt that. And we read about that from Matthew 28, where the angel had rolled the stone away, and there was a great earthquake. I don't even think she looked into the tomb at this point. Verse 2 says she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, who's the apostle John, the author of this account. And she said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've taken him. So Peter and John had a foot race to the cemetery. I've heard of people running in the cemetery, but rarely running to a cemetery. But they did, and Peter won the foot race. Peter reached the tomb. He bent over and looked in, saw strips of linen lying there. These were the strips that would be put upon a, a dead body. You remember, they weren't embalmed in that day, but they would put these strips of cloth around a person and then anoint them with many spices and oils. That's actually what the women were coming to do early that morning, to put on a second coat second coin of oil and spices. Simon Peter was actually behind uh, John, and when he arrived, he went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen, as well as the burial cloth that had been around the head of Jesus. The cloth was folded up by itself and separate from the linen. Now, here's the problem. How does someone get out of all of those strips of cloth? And if in a rush to get out, why would the head covering be folded? It's interesting that there is a tradition. Slaves 
know that if they are serving their master at the dinner table and the master gets up and leaves his, his napkin rumpled, that means that he's planning to return. He's not done. But if the master gets up and the napkin has been folded neatly, that means that he's done with the meal and he's not coming back. I don't know if that means anything, but it means that Jesus, when he left the tomb, indeed was done. He said it was finished on the cross, and now he's out of the tomb. It's all intentional here. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, John, also went in. He saw and believed. What did he believe? He believed a miracle had taken place. But verse 9 says, they still didn't understand the scripture that Jesus had spoken to them about that he must die and he must rise from the dead. They still didn't put it together. And there are so many people who will acknowledge a belief in Jesus as a good teacher and maybe even believe, yes, the miracle of the resurrection probably took place, but they don't understand the scripture. And so we read in verse 10, the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside of the tomb crying. That's the first thing I want you to note. Here is Mary standing outside of the tomb, and she is weeping. This is a, a lamentation. This is a sobbing. This is almost an uncontrollable cry that is very much Jewish in its custom, but deeper than that, it's because there's a loved one who is gone. Mary was distraught. She was devastated and shattered. She had come to the tomb not expecting it to be empty, shocked to see the stone rolled away, simply glad that the Savior had a decent place in which to rest. But now she's weeping and she's crying. The Scriptures tell us as she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated with Jesus' body, where Jesus' body had been. One was at the head, and one was at the foot. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but it is interesting to me that if you go to the Old Testament, there is in the tabernacle the holiest of holies. And in the holiest of holies, there is the Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant is a solid gold base called the Mercy Seat. And on top of the Mercy Seat are two angels, cherubim, leaning over with their wings touching in the center. Could it be that this is a beautiful picture of the Mercy Seat, a new one? that not in the blood of bulls and goats, but in the sacrifice of the Son of God and two angels there to recognize that mercy has come and Jesus has accomplished his mission. They look at Mary and they say to her woman, verse 13, why are you crying? And I think she has no clue who they are. Dressed in white, it might have been a brilliant white, they might have been glowing a little bit, but maybe not. I don't think there were any halos. That's a dead giveaway. The wings had to be hidden. I mean, this, here's just two individuals. And so she is concerned. She says, they, I'm crying because they've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. Now, why is she crying? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, she's crying because she loved him 
so dearly. She said, my Lord, not just my master and teacher, not just my leader and guide, but my Lord, my Savior. They've taken him away. Oh, how she loved him so deeply. It wasn't just in the the oil that she poured on his feet. It was the way she attended him, and she was even the one who gave funds to help Jesus, as we're told about, with other women from Galilee who went all the way to Jerusalem and helped Jesus in his ministry. Oh, how she loved him. It's not the kind of love of Jesus Christ Superstar, which is a rock opera from 1970, which is being renewed and even played today on live TV. They say the greatest song in all of that rock opera is Mary Magdalene's song, I Don't Know How to Love Him. But what pitiful words. What a sad situation. By the way, it is very amazing in that rock opera that is being played today, I read about the faith of all of the major characters. And all of them had been brought up in the faith, and all of them reject it, except for one, the guy who's playing Herod, whose name is Alice Cooper. Now, when I say that to the contemporary audience, they'll all know. He's a hard rock musician who dresses up in weird uh, dress. He, he grew up in, in a pastor's home, went away from the faith, came back to the faith, and was discipled by R.C. Sproul, the noted Presbyterian theologian, and don't get me started. <laughs> but I want you to know that the love here that Mary had had no sexual uh, connection. She wasn't married to Jesus. She was loving him because she was forgiven. That's what the scriptures say. Why did she cry? She cried because she loved him, and she cried because she lost him. The death, the burial, now the empty tomb, they had taken him. She didn't know who they were. Is it the Jews? Is it the Romans? Is it grave robbers? Is it the gardener she's going to? She doesn't know, but they took him away. A family grieves at the loss of a loved one, but grieves doubly so. The tragedy is magnified if the body's not found, or worse yet. As it's happened sometimes in military situations, the body is found by the enemy and abused. You not only lose your loved one, you lose the focus of that person, their body. She's crying thirdly, not just because she loved him and because she lost him, but because she needs him. Think about this. If Jesus is dead and Jesus is gone and he no longer exists, what about her sins? The Apostle Paul, thinking about this, wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless. Now, some of you will say preaching is useless anyhow, but it really is useless if Jesus is not alive. And so is your faith. I've heard people say that it doesn't matter whether Jesus rose again from the dead. It's just good to have faith. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is useless. 
More than that, we are found to be false witnesses, Paul said, because we're saying Christ raised from the dead. If he didn't, we're liars. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. There's a holy God in heaven, and we are sinful people who don't measure up to a perfect standard of righteousness, and we're still lost if Christ is not who he said he was, and if Christ died and didn't come out of the tomb, but praise be to God, he is victorious over sin and death and hell. The cross is the victory. The resurrection is the triumphal parade. In battle, the Romans would win on the battlefield and then come back to their city in elegant parade to be honored by all of the citizenry. And so the triumph of the crucified one, Jesus Christ, is the resurrection displayed for all to see. The Bible tells us that she was weeping out of ignorance. She didn't know. She didn't know what had happened. Her circumstances had changed, but she didn't know it. Philip Yancey said something very interesting in one of his writings. He said, there are two days with great names connected with Holy Week, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But you and I are often stuck in the day in between. We live our lives in the day in between. And he said, let's call this Sad Saturday. Huh. We live in despair not knowing our circumstances have changed. So the woman, Mary, says to the angels, I'm crying because he's gone. And then she turns, verse 14, and either she turned maybe to leave, maybe she heard some noise behind her, and that caused her to turn. Maybe the angel saw Jesus and stood up. But we read in verse 14, at this Mary turned, and when she turned around, she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. Wow. Poor Mary. She doesn't know the angels. She doesn't know Jesus. She doesn't know what has happened. She's weeping because of ignorance. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And this is one of several questions that Jesus asked throughout the New Testament that astounds me. Because he knows the answers. He's, he never asks a question to get information because he has all the information. Then why ask the question? Because that's the best way to pull people out. How are you doing? What are you hoping in? What do you really love? Why are you crying? Thinking him to be the gardener, she didn't recognize him. And maybe she didn't recognize him because it was dark, although by this time I think it might have been lighter. Maybe she didn't recognize him because of the tears. She could have been divinely hindered, like the two individuals on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. But I think it's because she didn't expect him. <laughs> I'll often be dressed in a little different garb than this, and I'll be in a store and run into one of you, 
and you'll say, oh, pastor, I didn't recognize you. You didn't shave, you're wearing a hat, whatever it might be. <laughs> you're in a store working, I didn't recognize you. Usually I see you not working, Sunday, dressed up. <laughs> you don't expect that person in that place, right? You don't expect Jesus to be alive. The disciples didn't get it. And we don't get it either until we see him. Thinking him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll get him. And he said to her, Miriam, in her own wonderful Aramaic tongue, Miriam, it was a word of, uh, of intimacy used only by close friends. It's not the formal name. It's the friendly name of Bon. She heard his voice then and recognized it. When he used her name, Jesus knows our name. I love that song. I have a maker. He formed my heart. Before even time began, my life was in his hands. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I call. He knows my name. Mary, Miriam. And she responded, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then apparently went to him and grabbed hold of him. Now, there are some theories that she didn't really grab hold of him, and Jesus said, you can't touch me. I haven't yet ascended to heaven. I don't think that's what it means at all. In fact, the original language is quite clear. Now you see Mary clinging to Jesus. She was weeping, but now she's clinging. There's a sense of recognition. There's a sense of worship. There's a sense of joy and realization why is Mary clinging to Jesus? Because she loves him. And it is an embrace of devotion. And now she realizes that he is alive. I love the story in John chapter 9 of the blind man that Jesus healed. Jesus went to him after the blind man had been thrown out of the synagogue because he was giving glory to this upstart Messiah. Jesus said to the blind man, do you believe in the Son of Man? He said, who is he, sir? Tell me so I can believe in him. Jesus said, it's me, the one you see. I'm the one speaking to you. And then the blind man, who now could see, said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. When we see Jesus, and truly believe in our heart that we are forgiven much, we love much, and we cling. We cannot get enough of the Savior. During the Vietnam War, Mrs. Blanche Gwynn of Elizabethtown, Tennessee, received an official report from the government that her son, John Gwynn, had died in battle. John Gwynne's remains were sent home. They had a funeral and buried, and the family grieved. I don't know exactly how long later it was, but they were notified by the Army officers that they had made a mistake. Whoops. <laughs> Actually, the remains belonged to a Quinn Titchener, 
fingerprints verified the mistake. And so John Gwynn was granted a 30-day leave from the government to go home and see his mommy who buried him. <laughs> I imagine there was a lot of hugging. And so it is when we see that Jesus himself indeed is alive. Let that truth, truth grab hold of your soul. One of the well, most well-known preachers of London many years ago was Robert W. Dale, preached in the city temple in London and had huge crowds. But he realized one Easter that he was kind of going through the motions and this whole thing of the resurrection hadn't grabbed hold of his heart, so he began to say in his study, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. And he meditated on and prayed and kept quoting scripture. Jesus is alive. And the truth broke hold of his soul. And the rest of his ministry, every Sunday, he would start out the worship service with an Easter hymn every Sunday. Just to remind everyone that we serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living. Whatever men may say, I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. And I'm clinging to the Savior. The Bible tells us, Jesus said to her, you've got to stop hanging on to me. You've got to stop clinging. Verse 17, I still have to return to the Father. I have to go somewhere and you have to go somewhere. I want you to go to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Why my Father, your Father, my God, your God? Because Jesus has a different relationship with the Father than we do. Right? He is the eternal Son of God. We are adopted children. He is God incarnate. And we have God living in us as his temples. We confess our sin and find forgiveness. When Jesus prayed, he never confessed sin because he had never sinned. So he says, I'm going to my Father, who is also your Father, and to my God, who is also your God. But we have a different relationship. You've got to stop clinging to me for, because there's something that I want you to do. And now we see, verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. And now we see Mary sharing. Did you notice the progression from misery to discovery to ministry? That's the way it works. From lamentation to recognition and now proclamation. Why did she go? The same reason she wept. The same reason she clinged, she went because she loved him. If we love him, then we will keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. What a delight to tell others about the risen Savior. She went because she loved him. And this was a command. She was convinced that he was alive. 
She had seen him, and that's her message. I have seen the Lord. By the way, that's the only prerequisite for you to become a witness, is to be able to say, I've seen him. Now, I don't mean with your literal eyes, but with the eyes of faith. I've seen him. In fact, you shouldn't be a witness until you have. Until you can declare to others, I have seen the Lord. She went because she loved him. She went because she was commanded. And by the way, notice the message. She shared the word of God. All the things that he said to her, she told them. But there's something hidden in verse 17 I don't want you to miss. It was a message, Jesus is alive, I've seen him. But here's the second message, go tell my brothers, Jesus said. Why is that significant? Because three days before, they all had rejected him. And you know how you feel when you disappoint someone? And you feel like maybe there is no chance of recovery? When Peter denied the Lord, he was ready to go back fishing. And that's why Jesus said, go tell the disciples and tell Peter that I'm going to see you in Galilee. And now he says, go tell my brothers. This is a message of forgiveness. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Are you ashamed to call him Lord? Many years ago, there was a young woman who grew up in a home with a mother who was greatly disfigured. The woman's face had been in a horrible accident and affected her mouth, and her speech was barely discernible. Growing up as a child, it wasn't too noticeable, but when this young woman became a preteen and into her teen years, all her friends made fun of her mother, and the daughter was embarrassed. When they would be walking on the street, if she saw her friend, she would separate herself from her mother, didn't want to be seen with her. This rude behavior continued until one day a relative noticed what had happened, the disrespect, and he went to her and said, how could you do that to your mother? She said, well, my friends are embarrassed, and so am I. He said, did your mother ever tell you what happened? There was a fire in the house. And she went back in to get you and saved you. And that's why her face is burned and her speech is marred. And the scars are scars of sacrifice and love. Well, that daughter went back and grabbed hold of her mother and was never ashamed again. How can we be ashamed of the one who died in our place to change us? She went and told others the great good news of Jesus Christ. I like what Watchman Nee once said. He said, our old history ends with the cross and our new history begins with the resurrection. We are made new in Jesus Christ. 
Several friends were at a restaurant and in the midst of the discussion, they began to talk about the subject of death and eulogies. And finally, they asked the question around the circle, what do you want someone to say about you at your funeral? You ever thought about that? And so one person said, well, uh, I want them to say to me, he had a successful career, he worked hard and helped others. Okay. Another guy said, at my funeral, I hope they say, I was a family man, love my wife, love my kids, love God. Good. Next man said, at my funeral, I hope they say, his body just moved. <laughs> It's not over. Well, my friend, you may not move at your funeral. In fact, if you do, I'm out of there. <laughs> but you in Christ will live again because Jesus is alive. Heavenly Father, stir our hearts to action and may we go from misery to discovery, belief, worship, and then to ministry to simply share the good news that you are alive and there is nothing to be feared. Our old history ends with the cross. Our new history begins with the resurrection. Amen.